This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mixing just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries. Ain't. Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Polly and their dog Ninja. It is in human nature to have extremely enjoyable feelings that make you feel guilty. Join me, your host, the one and only Father Sin. Every week while I delve into the inner workings of the human mind, in my own twisted and sinful way, on The Sinful Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, and welcome to episode 151 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. I'm Jerry. Hey guys, how you doing? As I wait for their response. We're doing fine, Tracy. Thanks for asking. <laughs> we had such an awesome time at the indie show. Yes, we did. Okay, we don't know that for a fact yet because we're recording this before the show. But we're assuming, based on the other live shows, <laughs> Dude, that you it's know going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome, without a doubt. Yeah, it'll be fun. It will be fun. I'm excited. I can't wait. So we'll just pretend, for sake of argument that it was an awesome time everybody showed up it was fantastic and it was probably the best show yet oh yeah okay this show will be one of the more unique shows that we've done because we are going to tell you the story of the demon of brownsville road which is one of the more famous hauntings out there but then we're going to follow it up by having bob cranmer on who is the patriarch of the family that went through this entire ordeal. So it's not often that we get to talk about the haunting and then turn around and have the haunted yes. on the show. And I'm sure it's going to blow your mind. Yeah, it's pretty. It's a pretty incredible story. But first, before we get into that, obviously, we want to thank all of our military and civil servants all over the world, no matter which country you represent. Thank you guys and gals for everything you do to help uh, keep us all safe. You know, it's funny that I had a patient call to make a new, well, she was making a new patient appointment for her. And she said her husband was a Marine. And I said, ooh-wah. Is that how you say it? <laughs> hoo-wah, or whatever it is. And she just died laughing. She's like, I don't believe I've ever had anybody do that. And it, it just was like automatic. It just like came out of my mouth. And I was like, oh, please thank him for his service. And then I said it. She was like, okay. If I remember correctly, I think the Army is hua. No, and the, I thought and the, the Marines. And the Marines is oorah. Oh. I'm really? Sure, I'm sure Justin will correct us. Oh. Justin Rimmel, because well, he's a Marine. It, she knew what I was talking about, yeah, either way. But I, think it's, I think it's oorah. 
for the Army and Oorah for the Marines. You know what? They're all amazing people. They are all amazing, but Thank they will tell guys. you in a heartbeat oh, if you're and wrong. They, uh, it needs to be corrected, <laughs> I will say. I will say that. But we do appreciate you guys and love you so much. And just um, keep staying safe and protecting us. And we'll pray for you guys every day like we always do. I want to also let everybody know that if they're having a rough patch right now, if they're suffering through some depression, if they've just got some tough things going on in life, Make sure you talk to somebody about it. Don't uh, just assume that you don't have any friends or family that care because that's probably a feeling that you just have, but it's not reality. Mm-hmm. Please talk to somebody. And if you do have a crappy family who don't care, unfortunately, there are families like that out there. You do have friends that care. That's why they're your friends. That's exactly right. And you've got people in our group that care, and we care. And I promise you that. I promise you we care. And you can be one of several people that write us a week and just talk. Mm-hmm. I know I had a conversation with a young lady just earlier this morning that started yesterday. She posted something in the group. I'm not going to call her out, obviously. She posted something in the group, and it was only up for probably two minutes. But I happened to see it, and it was very heartfelt, and it was very sad. And... um I saw it. I went to comment. And when I went to comment, it said that the the post was no longer there. Aww. So she had taken it down, which she had said in the post that she was really iffy about putting it on there anyway. And yeah. she apparently had second thoughts. And then I sent her a personal message and told her the same thing that I would have said on the post. Mm-hmm. And we had a little bit of dialogue. And hopefully, uh, hopefully she realizes that now that there are people who care, even though she said, I didn't even think anybody saw the post. No. And I said, well, I saw it, so mm-hmm. I'm going to respond to it. Well, we love you, honey. Yeah, absolutely. Always there for you You guys. know who you are. Even though I didn't tell any of the details, you know who you are. <laughs> Anyways, I'm ready to jump into this. Oh, I'm ready, too. All right. This is... Let me Before I jump into this, though, I want to make sure that I, I am going to put a little disclaimer on this because normally I like to go really deep on these and give as many details as possible. And I have way more details that I'm going to give, but this is a little tricky because Bob's going to be on right afterwards. And if I give every single detail that I could give you, all he's going to be able to do is repeat stuff. Right, right. I've heard an hour and a half interview by him and Mm -hmm. and it's phenomenal and i could do an hour and a half story on this Mm -hmm. because there's that many details oh yeah but like i said i can't i don't want to spoil everything so i'm gonna gonna be better coming from him anyway yeah but but at the same time i want to give as much of the story as possible Mm -hmm. that way for some reason if somebody says well i I just want to hear the story and i don't really care about the interview that they at least get the story yeah but there are going to be some parts of this that aren't going to be as detailed and I'll probably tell you the parts that I leave out, you know, as far as, you know, mm-hmm. hey, there'll be more coming. Because when I asked those questions to Bob and said, you know, I might have given you one line, he'll give you a five minute oh, yeah. segue on it. Oh, so yeah. I just want to make sure that people know there's probably going to be areas where it's like, well, you seem like you kind of left something out. And I did. So, all right. So we've talked about a lot of hunting on the show over the last three years, but rarely. Obviously, we have a chance to talk to the person not only involved, but directly affected. Tonight, we will tell you about the demon of Brownsville from Pittsburgh, and then we're going to talk to Bob Cranmer about his family's experience in this house. So let's jump into the story. As I've told you, there's probably not going to be as many details, but I think you're going to get 
the true story out of this, even if you didn't listen to the interview afterwards, which is the whole point. But trust me, you're going to want to hear Bob because he's phenomenal. So our story is going to start in December of 1988. Bob Cramner and his family, they bought a 105-year-old Victorian-style house at 3406 Brownsville Road in a Pittsburgh neighborhood. Let's talk about Bob real quick. I know what you're thinking. What about Bob? I'm just kidding. Mm. Oh. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> I want to I bring this up because it adds to credibility down the road. Bob is ex-military. He mm-hmm. served in the U.S. Army. Thank you for your service, Bob. 101st Airborne out of Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Nice. He was in the Persian Gulf War. Bob was also a very well-respected businessman and commissioner of Allegheny County in Pittsburgh. So that comes into play, like I said, because of what you're trying to build, that this is not just your average SMO right. running around. Matter of fact, he was on the commission back when Pittsburgh got their, all their new stadiums oh, that, no that were built, like Heinz Field, where the Steelers play and all that. Yeah. He was part of the commission that actually made the decisions to have that built and all that. So, I mean, this How he, fun. he made very important decisions for yes. that county and for that city every single yes, day. Yes, very respectable man. All right. So we're talking about Bob now and his family. They bought this house. And believe it or not, he had wanted this house for most of his life. No way. In a weird sort of way. And we're going to hear more about that fascination later when we actually talk about Bob. But you're going to find that it's like like the Hillbilly Horror House episodes mm-hmm. where the, you know, the characters was were drawn to the house. Yeah, she really wanted that house back. Kind of the same way mm-hmm. with this. And, you know, and, and Bob will later, uh, I've heard him tell on several occasions that when they were looking to buy the house mm-hmm. was the first time he had ever stepped foot inside of it. Whoa. So he knew that he wanted this house all along. And when they were moving back to Pittsburgh, his intention wasn't to move into the, uh, Pittsburgh itself. They were actually making some decent money. And his family had just uh, moved his company, had moved him up to here from, uh-huh. I think, New Jersey. And he was trying to, uh, like, go out to the suburbs and life's little neighborhood. Yeah. And then his mom tells him, hey, your house is getting ready to go on the market. And he knew exactly what she was talking about. And there you go. Wow. Amazing. This house ended up being a steal because Bob goes in, you know how they have that negotiation. Of right. You lowball, and then they come back with a higher offer, and eventually you kind of hope to, to meet in the middle. Well, Bob gave them the lowball offer, and they just pretty much jumped and said, we'll take it. <laughs> no counter offer, no nothing. Didn't even hesitate, huh? They, they were like, you know, uh, here's the keys. Uh, see you later. It's all you. <laughs> and that was it. Well, dang. So as you could imagine, things happened almost immediately in this house. Like, I'm talking about while they were viewing the house, before they even made an offer, things started happening. Wait, you mean like inside the house? Yeah, like while they were in there looking at the house with the current owners to see if they wanted to buy it or not, things started happening in the house. Now, it's not the typical things like you would think, and it might not even be things that you really even realize until after the fact. And Bob's going to tell us in great detail about this later. But in a jest, here's what happened. He goes in. He had a couple of kids with him. He had his three-year-old and his uh, four-year-old with him. Dang, man. Anyways, so 
it goes in. They're downstairs looking at the basement, and they happen to notice that their three-year-old son, Bobby, is not with them. So he apparently had went off on his own and was just, you know, rummaging around the house while they were down there looking in the basement. So Bob's wife, Lisa, and um, the female owner of the house, they go to look for the little boy. And they find him up on the staircase, up on the third floor, screaming and crying. So the woman runs over, that you know, that was selling the house. She runs over and grabs the little boy, and she says, what's wrong? Did you see something? Oh, dude. So okay, that's a weird thing to Bob, ask. Bob found that very strange that she would ask that question. So then Bob asked the male owner, a little owner, uh, a little uh, later in this conversations here, he says, is there anything wrong with the house? So this is where you would normally expect somebody to say, oh, well, there's some plumbing problems or maybe a leak in the roof. But that's not the answer that Bob got. The gentleman selling the house said the house was fine. Matter of fact, they've had mass twice in the living room, and one of his children even had their first communion in the house. Wait, why would they have mass? That's a good question. So you could imagine what would be going through your mind if that was the answer that was given to you when you ask a question like, is the house okay? Everything okay with the house? <laughs> so <laughs> the Cramers move in. It's Bob, his wife, Lisa. They've got their four children. And and their four children, keep in mind, it, it was four, three, two, and an infant. Oh, good Lord. Yeah, they had their hands full, to say the least. So they start experiencing some minor, we'll say paranormal ex- experiences, mainly because... Compared to the rest of the stuff, mm-hmm. this is all pretty minor. Radio's turning off and on, faucets turning off and on. We've heard those stories a thousand times. But then there's something that would happen that didn't seem to be paranormal at first, but it was. See, there was a closet that Lisa kept a vacuum in, and it had a light on the wall that had a pull chain. Mm-hmm. This was one, a light that was more, instead of like hanging from the ceiling, it's more like you would see on a, at like a porch light or something. Oh, okay. So it's a, you know, attached an arm, and then the light. Yeah. Makes sense? hmm Well, this light had a pull chain on it, and the pull chain would get wrapped around the light fixture itself. So then, like, every time Bob would go to turn the light on, he's reaching around in the dark to try to find the string. It's not there. So then he shines, like, a flashlight in there, and it's wrapped around the the arm part coming off of the the fixture itself. You mean like so if he pulled the string and like had like he pulled it and like let goose like or let goose but let loose it like bounce up or something. You know what right? I'm saying? And that's what he's thinking happens. Oh, okay. He's thinking his wife Lisa's doing that, so he goes to her automatically because he knows he didn't do that. Right. So he goes to his wife and he's like, "Hey, when you get in there and, and get the vacuum or something and turn that light on, can you you know not." Pull it and just let it go because it's wrapping itself around. Well, Lisa says, well, I mean, I haven't even been into the the closet. Mm -hmm. So they start talking about it, play the blame game a little bit. And he says, okay, well, he straightens the cord out. And he says, okay, we'll test it. Nobody go in that closet today. Yeah, because none of his kids could do it. They're too little. Yeah, his kids were too little to do it. You know, at four years old, that was the tallest one. They're not in there turning the light on in the closet. So they go back and check the closet, and the chain was once again twisted around the light fixture. Bob and Lisa always felt like there was something going on in the house because they were being felt that like they were being watched all mm-hmm. the time, and this kind of proved to them that there was something in the house. 
doing other things besides just making them feel watched. They said they felt like they were surrounded by the past as if they were living in it. So they started hearing loud knocks on the floor and the walls. Footsteps could be heard all over the house. So this was the natural progression of what was going on. But then things just kind of turned a lot more sinister in nature. They started to find items that were smashed or broken. Most alarming out of all these things was a crucifix that had bent completely out of shape and dumped on the floor like it had just been tossed there. There was also a bedroom. Now, this bedroom is going to get a lot of talk, and I'm going to ask Bob way more specific about this bedroom because you're going to find it may be the focal point of the entire house. Mm -hmm. They called it the blue room because it had blue wallpaper and a blue rug in it. The boys hated the room. That was their bedroom for a long time. They refused to sleep in it. Matter of fact, one of them would sleep in the closet in the room because he felt safer in the closet. No kidding. Yep. At one point in time, they moved the boys out, and they moved him and his wife moved Moved into that bedroom. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she started having, the wife started having a lot of psychological problems. She had a nervous breakdown and had to be uh, taken to a psychiatric hospital for a while. What in the world? They came back, they moved out of that room, and she went right back to normal. So the little boys, let's go back to the little boys. The little boys would say that there was something bad in there. Keep in mind, four and three years old when all this started. Yeah. So whatever it was in there was making itself known by appearing in the shape of a shadowy figure. It was like a black mist that was followed by a horrible stench. And I've heard Bob describe the stench as kind of like a sulfuric just type. Yeah. But it's just, you know, like the smell of fireworks or a match or something like that. So much stuff went on in this room. It's amazing. So the most frightening was probably uh, as you got longer. Keep in mind, this haunting lasted for years, years and years and years. I'm surprised they even wanted to stay there. Well, we'll get into that in a little bit. Mm-hmm. So there, there is a reason. And I asked Bob that. Okay. Because how many times do you see these stories when you're like, well, why wouldn't they just move? Well, I mean, I and, know financially but I'm, but I'm a lot saying, of people can't just do that. But I'm saying we get the chance to actually ask the person why right. didn't they do it. So that's pretty cool. So anyways, his son-in-law, they, he sees this big shadow appear over top of the boys' beds. It just appears. And then it fully forms, and then it makes its way to like a darkened crawl space and just disappears. On another occasion, their grandson saw this thing. And he broke down crying unconsolably and screamed, Monster, monster will get me. Oh, poor baby. This was only initially seen in the bedroom. But over the years, it became a little more bold and more violent. It would appear in other areas of the house. And it was also heard crawling through the walls and the crawl spaces at nighttime. Mm. So the family started to be attacked by unseen forces. One son had a massive set of claw marks on his chest. Scratching and bruises were the norm for all of the family members, and these attacks happened more frequently by the blue room than they did the rest of the house. So Bob Cramner, 
is now concerned that, that this thing is a demon and not a ghost or a poltergeist. So he starts trying to read from the Bible and putting up these religious artifacts and stuff all over the house to kind of ward off uh, whatever this thing is. Mm-hmm. All this did was make matters worse. More or less just pissed it off. Bob says that the entity would rip the Bible from his hands, destroy rosaries, scratch his neck, and warp and destroy crucifixes. Oh, that is so awful. The entity would bend crucifixes in half while the family members were wearing them. (gasps) While they were on their body? Yes. Bob would also play the movie uh, The Passion of the Christ nonstop in the house. He said that the demon hated it. And would try to turn the TV off. And a lot of times they would play it in that bedroom. Mm-hmm. When, and uh, he said at one point in time, his wife even put a mirror uh, at one place in front of the TV. So no matter where you were in the room, you they, could see oh, it. Oh, you could see you it. Could even oh, see wow. It from How smart is she? So they turned to their church. And Bob was not a Catholic at the time. Mm-hmm. But he went to his church and he said that. His church pretty much kind of blew him off. They kind of rolled their eyes, didn't really believe what he was saying. Wow. Tried a couple of things, wasn't working. Um, eventually, they'll turn to the Catholic Church, but not right this second. We will say, though, when it did start going, um, things started getting kind of crazy. And Adam Bly, I think it's the pronunciation is B-L-A-I, He's an expert in demonology, and he was an advisor for the Roman Catholic Church. So once they actually got the Catholic Church involved, uh, Adam came out. Now, I'm jumping ahead in this story because we're going to talk more about when the Catholic Church got involved, but I want to bring this up uh, now because there's good reason for it. So this guy's an an expert for the the Roman Catholic Church. He performs exorcisms, and he trains priests on doing exorcisms. Mm -hmm. He said that he knew something was immediately wrong when he walked into the closet. Oh, the, the closet the, where the kid hid? No, or no the, the, the closet where the... Uh, oh, where the chain was? Yes, the closet where the chain was. So he, he walks in, he, he's looking, and this is a little bitty closet. It's almost like a... Uh, like sometimes like a closet that would be under a stairway. Oh, yeah. And that's not really where it's at, but that's got that look to it. Like, with the slanted like slant? roof. It, yes. Oh, okay. It's just like the closet we've got down there. Uh-huh. But that doesn't apply to anybody who hadn't been to our house. True. But anyways... <laughs> But I, I'm sure everybody knows what It's that like is. that. So he walks in there, and he just gets this horrible feeling. And he says, we need to cut through the plaster on the little sidewall. And when they do, they find out that there's a little hidden room there. No doors or nothing to it. It's just like a hunch. There's a hidden room. Inside that little room were items that belonged to all of the previous owners of that house, including the Cramers. You mean like the the entity or whatever it is took the stuff? I guess. So some of their son's Legos were in there, and there was no pot. This was a sealed up room where there was no way to drop anything in. It was just a sealed up room, no vents, no nothing. But some of their son's Legos were inside that wall, along with a bunch of other stuff from previous owners. That is so bizarre. So over the course of two years, bishops and priests would visit the house doing exorcisms and masses and stuff like that. One of the more unexplainable instances was a blood-like substance that would appear on the wall. It was sent out for testing, and it was inconclusive as to what was actually in it, 
but they were told that it contained skin cells. <gasps> oh, so you mean like our skin just flakes off sometimes, right? Yeah, but it would be weird for that to be on the wall where these things are. Is it the wall in the closet? It was or all, all over, over the, the house. All over the house. Matter of fact, Ryan Buell, who was, uh, if you remember the show, Annie's um, from Annie called Paranormal State, mm-hmm. that was one of the big ones back years ago. Um, they came out to, he came out to investigate, and he saw with his own eyes a crucifix bend in half, and he also witnessed the blood like substance appear on the walls. As far as the blood, one priest said that he saw blood pour down the walls as he splashed holy water on them. Oh. And while we're on the subject of this is this is kind of weird too, but when the priest came in during one of the exorcisms, he was you know splashing mm-hmm. uh, water on the walls and stuff, and one of the little boys stood in front of the bedroom, the bedroom, mm-hmm. with the door closed and said, "You don't have to go in there." Wait, the little boy said that. Yeah, basically, not you don't have to. Told him not to go in there, so they just kind of played it off, splashed the thing whatever and went uh-huh. on but this was before uh anything was really heated heated you know what i mean mm-hmm. so but yeah but, but yeah that little boy is just like you don't have to go in there don't go in there oh weird yeah but anyways so the house had psychological effects on the family why is this in there thinking those kids had to be traumatized right bob's wife and two sons both spent time in psychiatric hospitals oh Lisa, after spending time in the bedroom, like we said, we yeah. talked about that instance already. This is kind of a, a touchy subject, but in 2003, things kind of took the biggest turn for the worst. This is when everything really went out of control. Bob was actually attacked by his 18-year-old son, Bobby. Now, oh, his, gosh, they're like his, grown adults Yeah, now. his 18-year-old son was the three-year-old. Oh. So we're 15 years after the fact now. I of when they they're still in. in that house. But he was attacked by his son. Bob retaliated. There was fighting going all throughout the house. Eventually, some family members called the police. They came out, and they arrested Bob because his son literally was marks and bruises all over him and was about half unconscious. So they arrested Bob. To which Bob's saying, look, he's got some issues right now. He's got, uh, you know, I don't know if he didn't take his medicine, but he's supposed to be on medicine. He spent some time in the psychiatric home, and he just... I came out of the bathroom. We started talking about something. He just started wailing on me. He threw like 15, 20 punches on me before I could even do anything. And I was just basically protecting myself. Yeah. And so they arrested him. And they ended up releasing him the next morning. And then he comes home. And then his aunt, that same morning, elderly aunt, passed away in the house in one of the bedrooms. Oh, no. So he got arrested that night. And his aunt passed away in the house the next morning. Gosh, how does he even deal with that? But after all that, that's when Bob got the Catholic Church involved. So I told you I got a yeah, little ahead of the game back then yeah. to talk about that closet. But that's when Bob requested help from the Catholic Church. Now, the mayor of Pittsburgh, Tom Murphy, was a really good friend of, of Bob's, obviously, mm-hmm. because they were both in politics. He called in a favor from the bishop of Pittsburgh, Donald Worrell. He assigned the case to Father uh, Rong Lang, and it took approximately two years of exorcisms and stuff before this thing started to really calm down. And when the priest and stuff came in, they said flat up, you're looking at at least a year. At least a year. Because of how bad it is. So they didn't, like, 
like every week? They were there from from what I'm understanding. They were there about every six or seven days. So they weren't there nonstop. It wasn't an everyday thing. Yeah. But the but priest, bishop, somebody was there like every seven days. There wow. was somebody there. So once a week, they were coming in there. All of this finally ended. The evil entity's existence supposedly left February of 2006. Bob had been keeping some notes all along because I think it was the mayor, if I remember correctly, told him, you should be keeping notes on this. Oh, I mean, I don't, I would say so. So he kept all these notes and uh, about what was happening. And in 2014, he wrote a book called The Demon of Brownsville Road. And that's kind of the end of that part of it. So the question is, why was the house invaded by a demon? What was the purpose Mm -hmm. of all this? Bob had done some research. And according to him, he found out that there was a massacre on this land in the 1700s when some Native Americans slaughtered a settler woman and her two children, he said that the bodies are buried where the house sits right now. So he thinks that could be part of the situation. He also said that the house was cursed by an immigrant worker who actually helped build the house because he wasn't paid for his work, so he put a curse on the house. So there's strike two. This one's a big one. That bedroom we talked about. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how he found all this information out. Because I imagine some of this stuff would be pretty hard to find out details. Yeah. That bedroom used to be used by a doctor that lived a few houses down from him. And this was back in, I think, the 20s or the 30s. It was I know it was the 30s, I think, but 20s or the 30s. I'm a little escaped on that. But this guy would perform illegal abortions because abortions were illegal back mm. then. This was pre-Roe uh, versus Wade. And, but he couldn't do them. He was a regular doctor, so he couldn't do them out of his house and his reputation. So somehow, some way, he was allowed to use that house and supposedly used that bedroom to perform these illegal abortions. And they said there was at least one woman who died who was rushed to the hospital after the abortion went wrong. She was bleeding out or something. They were taken to the hospital. She either died at the hospital or on the way to the hospital. But that's not to mention how many abortions went right and how many babies actually died in that room because you don't know what term these babies were. They could have been five, six, seven months old Aww. in some cases. Well, so then what, I mean, once that lady passed away, then the police had to find out what. I would think, and like I said, I don't know the details on how he found that out or how he even found out that that was the bedroom. Now, we do know for a fact through some research that that doctor did exist and he was mm-hmm. uh, in that neighborhood. Wow. But whether he was doing that and whether he was doing it at that house, I don't know. And I'm not saying that it didn't. I'm just saying I don't know. Mm-hmm. That would be hard to find out that kind of information on what bedroom and stuff they used from the yeah. 1930s yeah. when you're in the 1990s. Yeah. Or That's above. so bad. So what exactly is a demon? Well, according to Bob, this is what he said. A ghost, if you believe in them, is generally a soul of a person who passed on in some tragic event or something of that nature. A demon is actually the opposite of an angel. The existence of this thing manifests itself in a much different way than a ghost would. A ghost is generally reliving some type of event that took place during its life. Sometimes they can interact with people that are alive. In our case, this was demonic, evil, malicious, malevolent spirit that interacted with us in a regular basis. 
It wanted to hurt us. It wanted to drive us out of the house. There was no pretense of it ever being a any kind of lost soul. So what has happened since the book came out? Well, lots of TV shows have covered the in, uh, incident uh, and the story, including A Haunting. Mm-hmm. I believe that was season. It was season eight or nine, but they covered it, which that's one of my favorite shows. Yeah. Bob's definitely made his his rounds of way the uh, on TV and radio circuits. He's talked about the book and the experience on several things. Now, first of all, Bob says that there is still some paranormal activity in the house, but nothing malicious and less and less as the years go by. So virtually nothing now, but now it's just like minor stuff like it was in the very beginning. <laughs> well, I'm sure this entity's kind of tired and pissed off now because he's <laughs> like, God, I can't do anything to get them out of here. Now, it's also fair to note that Bob's claims have also been met with a fair amount of criticism. Mainly by previous owners, or in some cases, their descendants, because some of the previous owners have died. You think about it, this, some of these previous owners were back in the 40s. So, they've denied any type of paranormal activity happening when they owned the home. Karen Dwyer lived there in the house in the late 50s. In the early 60s for about seven years. Now, she was a child then, but she said that her mom, grandpa, or grandma never said anything about the house ever being haunted. She said, if he wants to write a book from 1988 and forward, I don't care. But don't lie about the people and the things that happened before that. Yeah, but maybe they kept it from her. Right. Well, that's what Bob says. Bob retaliated by saying, you know, these people trying to shelter their own reputation Mm -hmm. and as well to to help in selling the house they don't want you to know what the reputation of the house is yeah he said people are worried about being held legally liable uh, if they don't reveal you know the problems of spiritual natures to buyers so i could understand that he thinks this is what happened in 1979 and 1988. That was the last two times that the house sold. Now, the house sold again in, I think, 48 or 49. But it, it would it, well, it was up for offer, but it was because the people had lost it to taxes. Oh, uh-huh. So it was at a sheriff's sale, so it wasn't a traditional yeah. sale. Where they yeah. would have to worry about that. So he thinks that uh, the house is haunted all along, and people know. And even the last people he bought the house from, the ones where we just talked about, you know, hey, what did you see? Did you see something? And the guy's saying, hey, we had masks a couple of times. Those people had since passed since before the book came out. So, so they can't go There's back. no way to ask them. But their daughter basically said that he they, they thought the book made her family look bad. But Bob used to assume names. He didn't use their real yeah. names or any of that. I'd imagine it'd be pretty easy to find. You could go back to public records for well, house course. sales and stuff. Um, but well, yeah. She felt like that that was just making her family look bad, and she didn't think that those things were said. And that was, you know. So I understand that almost every one of these owners were no longer alive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know. So, anyways, Bob said that there was a young lady by the name of uh, Barbara Wagner. She told him that there was substantial paranormal activity that happened there way before he ever bought the house. There was also a neighbor that uh, Bob was outside one day standing, and the neighbor walked up to him, and, and he basically said, oh, so you're the one that bought the haunted house. Mm. And he went on to talk about he hadn't been inside, but his dad, when he was a, a kid, teenager, I guess, uh-huh. him and some friends broke into the house, basically just hang out. It was vacant for a while. Yeah. And something scared them to death, and they, came, they told him basically get out of the house, and they ran out of the house, and they had told that story ever since. 
So the stories were out there about it being haunted before then. He also had an elderly woman that was a neighbor uh, that lived in the neighborhood. And she said when she was a toddler, she lived in that house and she could remember an unseen force throwing a shoe at her. Whoa. Bob's been adamant that this story is 100% true and accurate. Now, we'll say this, and I, I obviously didn't talk to Bob about this, but it's been a rough time for Bob since the release of this book in 2014. Really? His son, David, who was the uh, two-year-old at the time they moved in, he died in 2015, and Aww. I don't know any details, and I didn't want to ask. Aww. His wife, that same year, suffered from very deep depression, fell into it, and this resulted in their marriage ending. Oh, my gosh. So, but, you know, Bob Bob definitely believes that all all this is tied to that house. Yeah. That's really a shame. I, I mean, I cannot imagine... All this stuff happening, he could not have just made all this and, up. And and I'm telling you guys, the book, and I'm not a huge book guy, but the book has so much more information yeah. than we even came close to covering. And Bob's going to tell you a lot more information mm-hmm. that we didn't cover. So yeah, I mean, why? I mean, what does he? Why would he lie about this stuff? Especially everything that's happened to his family. What's well, like I said? Let's go back to. And I'm not saying just because somebody's credible doesn't mean they can't do something unscrupulous. But the reality of it is, you know, this is a guy that made good money. This yeah. is a guy that's ex-military. This is a guy that was an officer because he ended up working mm-hmm. his way to major mm-hmm. um, in the military. He's on. He's a politician. I know that doesn't say a lot for credibility these days. Well, but yeah. this guy was in charge of a lot of important stuff. He made good money. There was mm-hmm. no need for all that. Right. You know. Uh, but well, needless to say, he's had an interesting life for sure. Yeah, without a doubt, and he still lives in that house today. No, he don't. Yes, yes he does. Oh, so well, it's like I said, he says that everything's pretty much diminished. Well, that's since two thousand and six. Well, thank God for that. Well, I'm excited to. And he's converted from. Um, I think he was Protestant. To Catholic. to Catholic, because he yeah, said, you know, I heard, it, I, heard, him I heard Bob say in an interview that you hear about, and this is his words, you hear about all this Catholic church hocus pocus, but mm-hmm. he said, I'm here to tell you that it's real, mm-hmm. that the things that they say about this, he said, you know, he, he saw the exorcist when he was a kid and, uh, you know, younger and, um, he just, you know, that was the only thing he knew about exorcisms in the Catholic church and blah, 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 blah. And he said, but then when he was not really getting any luck out of his own church, yeah, with, nobody was anything him. they were doing, and he went to the Catholic church, that's when he said they, they knew what they were doing. Yeah. It was definitely their area of expertise. Oh, man. Bless his heart. Oh, well, I'm interested to hear the more details that he's got to talk about. And, man, that's, so, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot to live through. So what do you think? I mean, I I feel like whatever he's saying, I mean, I feel like it's the whole truth. I mean, he's offered to take a lot of detector tests for uh, anybody no, that's, yeah. that's disputing what's going on. Yeah. You know, his thing is, hey, it's not the actual people telling me this. It's their family members, and yes. they may not know everything. Right. You know, yeah. we know what we live through. Well, and, and you know, and, and that's what he, exactly. He lived through it. I mean, that's a lot of stuff to be making up. 
you know, and and he's I'm had, just, I feel like it's incredible that he's sharing this story. Well, and you had priests that came in there and spent the better part of a year trying to get things better, yeah. the better part of two years. Right. You know, you've had the, you know, all these priests and stuff aren't just going to come in there and lie well, about no, of course what, not. what they were experiencing. Yeah. Whew. He's brave soul to so, live through and that. So, something happened where he had two sons and a wife have to go spend time at mental facilities yeah. and stuff. Obviously, you know, and they were all seeing things, mm-hmm. the same thing. So, Well, I'll, it's going to be interesting to hear the rest of the goings on in that house. Well, you don't have to wait long because we're going to do our Patreons and our yeah. iTunes shout outs and talk about a few upcoming shows. Mm-hmm. And we're going to hear that compelling interview with Bob. You guys are going to love this. Yeah, I hope you guys are listen to his interviews because I think you're really going to be fascinated by it. Yeah, even if you're not big into our interviews, trust me, this is one that you will want to hear. So coming up, we're going to have Bob Cramner on. Now, obviously, he lived through this whole um, ordeal in the house. So when you get it straight from the horse's mouth, it's going to be 10 times better than us just telling you a story. So a lot of people have mixed opinions on what he should have done, what he shouldn't have done. And I'm going to ask him about that. But before I do, I've got two special guests. Kristen is back. Hello. Little mini me. But even more special. Not because I love her more, because I love Kristen more. I love her, though. Oh. Natasha Anchor from Australia. Hi. So she came out. We did the indie show last night. Now, let's talk real quick about the indie show. What was your thoughts? I had so much fun. It was really awesome. It was so much fun to meet everybody and, like, in person and, yeah, watch the live shows and stuff. It was really great. Now, be honest. Who was better, us or Ohio? Justin Remmel. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I already <laughs> Justin. So, we were t- at breakfast this morning. Uh, I guess technically lunch. Oh, yeah. And do y'all have lunch in Australia? No. Okay, I just wasn't sure because you know things are different. Yeah, the toilet goes the wrong way. I don't know if it does. It does. It flushes the opposite way. I never looked in the dunny it, after I'm it, done. <laughs> I don't know the way the water what? goes or the dunny. Yeah, when you flush it, it goes the opposite direction. You know how? It, wow. But it's. I think it's because of being south uh, of the. Uh, yeah, it's some magnetic thing. Apparently, yeah. I don't know. What in the hell? I don't know. I don't know. Hmm. Like I said, I never looked at the dunny water, so. The dunny. Is that what it's called? Well, yeah. They call the toilet a dunny. Oh, that's great. I'm going to start calling well, it's it It's because when you get through pooping, you're like, I'm dunny. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I never thought of that, actually. I don't know why they that's call it so that. Funny. Okay, so anyway, we're having lunch, and we brought up uh, Bob's conversation and his story of what went on, and you said you were a little perturbed at some of the choices he made. you want to elaborate on that? Um, so I'm not going to judge him. Actually, no. I try not to judge people because I'm not in this situation. But I was quite upset because I listened to Brohio's episode on it. Um, and, yeah, I was actually really mad. <laughs> I was, like, upset that he put his family through that. I was upset that he didn't take into consideration, like, his child when they saw um, – like, when they did the first inspection before they, like – bought the place um i was upset that he was still there um his family's obviously suffered a lot and you know 
he ended up splitting with his wife and everything. They've all moved out and didn't his son get depression and stuff? And mm-hmm. I don't know. I just, like me personally, I would have put my safety and my family's safety above all else and I would have not wanted to live there. I would have gotten out as soon as I could have, um, even if that meant like a loss of finances or whatever. And he's a well-to-do man. Like I'm pretty sure he could have, afforded the loss do you know what I mean and or bought a second place or something I don't know I was really upset by it I was so upset that I went home <laughs> like I had a huge rant to Nathan because I was living with him then and he's a big bro hire fan too and he hadn't listened to the show and yeah he heard it and he was the same as me we like had a, had a big half hour session just hating on this guy because I mean it's one thing to live in a house that goes bump in the night every now and then but this was like full on and the whole thing just really upset me and I don't know how he can live in there alone by himself either but I mean that's his choice well he says well I'm not going to run the interview because nobody's heard the interview yet or at least on our end but I think when you listen to our interview which I know you haven't heard yet you may have a little different feel about him because I asked I asked him um straight up why stay there Oh, wow. why, why did you stay there when you know you had other options? And do you have any regrets? And I think you might be surprised at okay. his answer. So. Okay, cool. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We uh, and, and Natasha, by the way, is going to join us for some of the shorts. So if you're a Patreon member, you're going to get to hear a little more of Natasha. And if Sign you up hear, if you want. If you want to hear even more, you can go to the second season of He Believe Horror House, which she is the... Um, Co-host on there. Mm-hmm. I play Amber. <laughs> You're so funny. Okay. iTunes reviews. Thank you for all of you done this week. This is a bunch of iTunes reviews. We've got EFT2304, Jordan Lang779, Country Life847. I think this is Ashtan, or it could be A5Tan. I'm trying to read Tracy's writing. <laughs> Mama Wolf 10, Kate's The Greats, Zach, War Eagle. Uh, it says, oh, never mind. It says War Eagle, Jerry, CWS. He's an Auburn fan, so that's a little dig. And uh, Leah Bilal. And then we've got Patreons, new Patreons this week. Thank you so much for all your support. It allows us to do these live shows. Uh, Elizabeth Bracken, Amrita Karen, Sam Schroeder, and Walt Grenier. Thank you, guys. We appreciate it. Thank you. All right, so I made you wait long enough. Let's take a listen to this interview with Bob Kramer. All right, guys, I'm I'm excited about this one because we don't get the opportunity to talk to too many people that were uh, directly affected by these hauntings, especially in, in a way like uh, Bob Kramer and his family were. Bob, you've been a successful businessman and a politician. You've also been a veteran serving in the U.S. Army, and I want to thank you for that. And all that you've done for public service, I know it's uh, underappreciated a lot of times. We take the military very serious on this show. We're a Kentucky show, so we love our 101st Airborne. So I just wanted to give a big thank you. I was five years there. Five years. (laughs) I know that. And and uh, like I said, I just want to make sure you knew how well that part is appreciated by us and everybody that listens to this show. Good. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I miss Clarksville. Obviously, today you're on because of some paranormal ties. You wrote The Demon of Brownsville Road based on your family's experiences and what you know is a demon that was in your dream home. 
Now, we gave a brief synopsis of the haunting on, on the show a little earlier. Purposely left out a lot of details so I could cover some of these things with you. The first question I've got for you, Bob, is the house on Brownsville Road. You always had a connection to that house way before you bought it. Can you tell us a little bit about that connection and how far it went back? Well, it's interesting. For those who who read the book or will read the book in the epilogue, the very end, you'll see I found out, true or not, that I was related to that house for a long time and uh, going back. And, and, you know, I know that there are Christians listening and we debated and debated whether we were going to put this in the book or not. But it regard it's regarding a past life experience and reincarnation. A lot of people get all excited about that. I I have done a lot of research into it. I think it's completely compatible with Christianity. I don't have an issue with it now. But nonetheless, apparently my life stretched my existence stretched back into another lifetime with that house and and thus carried over and I was uh I was attracted to it from the my very youngest years from the time I was, you know, six, seven years old and could walk the street by it. I would stand and stare at it uh, all through my my adolescent years, my teenage years. Um, I always had a desire just to go in the house and see the house. I, I just yearned for it and loved it. And uh, when I when I left the military in 19... Uh, what, what was it? Uh, moved back to Pittsburgh in 1987, or excuse me, 1988. Was coming back to uh, start a new job, and uh, was excited. had had been married, you know, I was married, had four children, and my mother said to me, I, I hadn't not planned on moving back to the same little town where I grew up, and she says, Oh yes, you will. She said, Your house is going on the market. Now, she didn't have to say what house. She said, your house is going on the market. And I knew immediately what she was, what house she was referring to. And I thought it quite interesting that the house was somewhat waiting for my return when I had the means and the wherewithal to not only uh, buy the house, but I got to go in, in it and fulfill my dream of seeing the inside of the house and being able to uh, to live in it. Now, I certainly had no idea what we were getting into and what we were moving into. My wife had uh, had some premonitions and wasn't excited about it, at least not excited as I was, and expressed reservations about the how impractical it was that we would buy this gigantic old house. But uh, yet I insisted. So that's the story. I'd also like to make it very clear when you say haunting, I don't consider a haunting it to be a haunting what we experienced. We experienced a possession. You know, ghosts are real. Ghosts are relatively common. They're the spirits of people who once lived, usually dying as part of some traumatic situation, and and for some reason their spirit is tied to a particular place or location. 
and they have to spend time there. Maybe it's akin to the the Catholic doctrine of purgatory, where they have to, you know, atone for something before they can move on to their eternal destination. Uh, so hauntings are relatively common. Possessions, on the on the other hand, are not. Something is possessed by a demon. A demon is not a ghost. A demon is a fallen angel, a supernatural being. One-third of the angels rebelled against God and were cast out of heaven, down to the earth, I might say. So they're very powerful uh, purveyors of evil throughout the world. And they possess people. They possess things. They possess places. And our house was possessed by a demon. So that's what we experienced. Not so much a haunted house, even though there may have been some ghosts in there. It wasn't the ghosts that were causing us the problems. It was the demon. Right. So you go into the house. When you are looking at it with the previous owners, it's the first time you'd ever been into the house, even though you were infatuated your whole life. And you ran into some things during that visit that probably should have tipped you off. There were some issues there. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I'd say the first couple times we went there, obviously, I, you know, I can't remember each time we would visit, even after we, we made the deal. We went back several times, you know, to look at things, to take measurements. And, you know, it, it, the place is so big, it's like a, a, like a small apartment building. Uh, for, for those, if, to describe it, and there's a picture of it on the front of the book, The Demon of Brownsville Road, three-story. Um, almost looks like a southern mansion with big white pillars, large front porch just a very um, distinguished looking uh, house with the, all the oak woodwork and the servant's staircase and servant's bells and everything you would expect to find in a, in a Victorian home. So when, when we first went into the house and we were looking to, um, to buy it, as I said, my, my wife, you know, had, had told me a number of times, you know, this, this house is way, way too much for us. I mean, uh, it's giant. We, we, we maybe have enough furniture for the first floor, and we didn't even have really that much furniture. <laughs> it was just so big. Uh, I, you know, I was just commenting the other uh, just on Sunday to my son. One of the rooms with older homes, they always had a big sitting room called a parlor that you only used certain times of the year when guests came or Christmas or holidays. And back in the late 80s, I bought a, uh, a very nice Victorian sofa and love seat and tables and so on. And, and this was well over 30 years ago. And I, I told my son, look at that thing. It still looks brand new. It, it, it's new because it was really never used. It was so <laughs> big that we, that was our parlor. You know, who has a parlor anymore? But then who has that much room. So uh, to answer your question, I, I think the first red flag for me was just the somewhat unsettled attitude of the people who were selling us the house. They were happy that they, someone was very interested in buying it, yet at the same time, 
they were angry, and I, I, I gauged this mainly on the woman and her reaction. She was angry that she felt like she had to move, and uh, they, they wanted out. Now, when I, I knew how much money we had, I had an eye, you know, what, what they were asking. So when you, you – obviously, you always make a low-ball offer, and I knew I could probably pay $20,000 more than what I was going to offer. And I was so surprised when I made the offer and he immediately said, that sounds good to me. <laughs> I was amazed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's great. Let's do it. Uh, so I, that, that was, uh, that was a, 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 a shock. He wa- they just wanted out of that house. And then as we would go back, I, and this is in the book as well, at one point, we were looking at the house and uh, really all the things that we had to fix. I mean, it has uh, almost 50 windows, big windows. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's yeah, it's a I think I think we replaced 46 windows and that wasn't all of them. The, you know, the furnace, the, the, the furnace, it had one of the original gas furnaces ever made from back from the late 40s. Uh, I always joke that uh, when, when I turned it on in the, uh, in the fall, I'd have to notify the gas company because they'd get a reduction in pressure in their line. <laughs> <laughs> so we were touring the house and it was uh, my wife and I and our two oldest children, Jessica, who was four, and Bobby, who was three at the time, and uh, my wife, Lisa, and I. And we were in the basement, and my wife turned to Jessica and said, where's Bobby? And she says, I I don't know. He must be upstairs. So my wife was a little bit concerned. It's not like you can just call upstairs and say, Bobby, you're up there. So she headed up the steps, and, and, and the woman of the house went with her. And they went up through the kitchen, through the dining room, out into the foyer where there's a large staircase with a landing on it that uh, can, comes back. It goes up and then it goes back up to the second floor balcony. And he was standing on that the landing of the staircase, uh, like hyperventilating and shaking. And the woman's reaction was strange. She said, honey, what happened? Did you see something? And, and she kind of embraced him. And my wife thought to herself, what do you mean? Did you see something? What would he have seen? <laughs> so th- those types of things became more common. And we began to understand after we moved in how common they were. But, um, you know, even my wife then asked me to somewhat be direct with this guy and ask him, is there something wrong with the house? And I did just that. And we were in the kitchen. I said, Jim, is is there something wrong with this house? Now, you would think he would say, well, qualify. What do you mean wrong with the the roof or the sewer or what do you mean? No, he knew what I was talking about because his response was very, very quick. He said, no. In fact, we've had mass in the uh, in the living room twice. A priest has said mass in the living room twice. It's it's fine. And I'm thinking, for those that are Catholic, uh, <laughs> mass isn't something you take on the road. You know, it's not like you're going to go to your house and have mass. It, it's it's a special celebration that takes place generally in a church, unless it is a time of war or so on. They'll do it outside or 
Uh, you know, it's a it's it's a formal thing. It's not something you can generally do it in homes. But it was an odd answer. And you know, later that spring, as I was planting some flowers outside, and my shovel hit a small box in the dirt base of a, one of the uh, near a tree, and I and I opened the box up. I I dug it up. It was not old or rusty or anything. It, you could tell it had not been there that long. It was like a Sucrets lozenges box, and it was filled with religious items like a rosary beads and some uh, religious medals. So I called him up, and I said, Jim, you know, explain this to me. I said, I dug this box up out at the end of the driveway. He said, please, just bury it and put it back where you found it. And that's always say to me. So he, he knew. He knew what was going on. So you move into the house. You start noticing some little paranormal, what we would say fairly normal paranormal things happening. Lights and stuff turning on, stereos, faucets yes. turning on. Yeah, nothing that seemed real threatening. I mean, once you, once you get over the shock of it, it's not that big of a deal. So tell me about the next thing that we covered in, in our little synopsis was the little test that you and your wife did with the closet light. Kind of tell me a little bit about uh, that incident where you first started realizing that, hey, there's something definitely here. Yeah, well, we, we moved in in early December. And, you know, as I recall, this was, it was early January by then. And we were, we were settled into the house. And it was winter time. And, um, you know, I'd go to work and wear an overcoat. And in the foyer underneath the staircase is a large walk-in closet. And in that closet is a, you know, ornamental Victorian light that points down towards the floor. I'm just about six feet tall and it's, uh, it's even with my face. So it's, it's pretty high up and it has a, has a pool chain. So when you open, open up the, the closet door and you step in to, um, hang up whatever it is you want to hang up and there's room my wife kept the the sweeper or the vacuum in there and boxes and so on but you, you st- take a step into the closet and you just reach where the light is and you pull the chain turn on the light it's nothing uh, out of the ordinary but i i noticed that all the time when i'd go to hang my coat up or get re- get my coat i'd reach for that chain and again you open up the door your eyes aren't adjusted yet and you're just looking into blackness and um you really can't see where the light is you're just feeling for it the chain wouldn't be there and i'd always find it wrapped around the top of the light or very intricately wrapped around the little chain the little uh like the little screws that held in the shade uh on the top of the light so that happened, you know, three or four times. And finally, I said to my wife, I, I, I called her over and I said, Lisa, when you turn the light off, please just don't let it fly up in the air. And it wraps around the top of the light. It wraps around the screws and it's it's aggravating. So just pull it gently and turn it off or turn it on. And uh, she said, well, first of all, I, I don't. I know how to pull the chain. <laughs> and two, I haven't been in that closet today or yesterday. So I didn't do it. I said, okay. So the test is that we 
Uh, one morning, I, we were both standing at the at the door. I put on my overcoat. You know, I made sure. Now the, the kids, the oldest kid, the child is four years old. She's a little girl, and uh, we have a four-year-old, a three-year-old, a two-year-old, uh, and an infant who is you know months old. So they're not doing it either. So I, I, we look at the chain hanging straight, close the door. I come home that night. It's like a little, you know, okay, drum roll, please open the door. It's wrapped around the top of the light. <laughs> okay. I didn't do it. You didn't do it. There's something going on here. Finally, it got to the point where I took a piece of wire and I, and I attached it. I affixed it to that chain. And I ran the wire over to a hook on the on the, you know, you could hang the coats up. Hooks were real big in those days when they built the house. Brass hooks, and I, and I tied the wire to a brass hook so that uh, whatever was doing that would have really had to maybe cut it with a pair of pliers or something so it could wrap it around the light. But nonetheless, that chain was we were not doing it, and something was. So we knew right then and there that there was a spirit in the house. And other things then began to happen on a pretty regular basis, which did not seem threatening, but creeped you out. Uh, you know, the radio would be on, the lights would be on, furniture would be moved around. You know, the list goes on. Things that would always generally happen through the night and you would discover uh, the next morning. Uh, when you came downstairs and uh, that went on then for a number of years the kids got older they began to notice it hardly a you know night went by that we didn't wake up with at least two of them in bed with us every night well let's let's talk about that because so so things eventually turned a little more sinister and a lot of the focus especially early on seemed to be in the one bedroom and that's the bedroom the boys slept in correct well, that's a bedroom that my my son Bobby uh, slept in. We we call it the blue room. And uh, what was significant about that too is here he is, three years old, and later on this thing really, really focused on him. He's had a rough time, a rough life because of this. He's doing fine now, but a real rough time. He had this big bedroom, big bedroom to himself. He'd sleep in the closet on the floor with the light on. We finally put a crib mattress on the floor. He slept in there probably for a year in the closet. And after this this activity started to ramp up more and more, I asked my mother, who was Roman Catholic. At the time, uh, we were evangelical Christians. We attended a Baptist church. Uh, my, my mother was Catholic, and so she arranged for one of the priests at her parish, Father Victor, to come to the house to do a house blessing. And the house blessing involves primarily uh, saying uh, with the family a number of prayers that God's peace be upon it and so on. But the, the core of the blessing is going from room to room and um, applying holy water to the walls and the floor. And as you go throughout the house, just blessing the house with holy water. And we were on the second floor 
and going from bedroom to bedroom. And as we walked down the hall and we approached the blue room, which is by itself in the uh, left front corner of the house, we found my three-year-old son standing in the doorway with the door closed, looking very, this is kids, three years old, looking at the priest saying, you can't come in this room. You cannot come in this room. That's all he kept saying. You can't come in this room. You know, I was ready to grab him and move him out of the way. But this, the, the priest said, oh, let's not upset him. He's just a little little frightened by all of this. So he just threw water on the door and, and, and moved on. What we would later come to discover was that room decades and decades ago was rented out to a, uh, a doctor who performed illegal abortions. We're not sure for how many years, but he performed them in that bedroom. And it was uh, it was a place of, uh, of death. Uh, so that's the blue room. Later on, uh, if I remember correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you switched out and um, I guess you guys started using the bedroom and then that caused some problems with your wife, correct? Uh, it did. Yeah, we, uh, we we had the master bedroom, which was in the middle of the back of the house. Uh, my wife, we were doing quite a bit of remodeling to it, a significant amount of remodeling to it. So we moved Bobby to a smaller bedroom that really wasn't used for anything. And she and I moved into the blue room. It really impacted her mentally. She had what eventually would – she was in her uh, – mid 30s, I guess at the time, 34, 33, 34, had a nervous breakdown. Uh, it was just uh, unbelievable how bad it was. And uh, uh, I believe it really coincided with us moving into that bedroom. She was hospitalized, psychiatric ward for several weeks. It was a very traumatic situation. Once we moved her out of that room, which wasn't too long after that, she began to recover. But that room had an impact on her. I I can see why a lot went on in that room. And that was detrimental to mothers and children. You tried doing several things to cleanse the house, to uh, exercise the house, so to speak. And uh, in the beginning stages, all it did was more or less piss it off for lack of a better term. Well, what, what we found out, and this is when it gets really, starts to really get serious and ominous. Uh, I think that's when the story ceases to just to be interesting and, and becomes becomes ominous. At least it was for me at that time. I, once we, we, we got the Catholic diocese involved and the bishop of the diocese assigned priest to work on the case, so to speak. You know, I, I thought they would come and the Catholic Church, because back back in those days, that was before the, you know, the paranormal craze where there were all these paranormal, quote, experts that knew all this stuff about dealing with the paranormal. Yeah, I'll teach you how to defuse bombs. That's what it's like. I'm going to have a hobby <laughs> defusing bombs. Um, it's crazy to get involved with that stuff, but nonetheless, there were there were nothing. It, it just wasn't 
known then. Like, you know, who are you going to call the Ghostbusters? Well, the Ghostbusters, I would have called them had I been able to, but there was nobody then. You know, the, there, there was not the Pittsburgh Paranormal Society or the, uh, you know, the New Wilmington Paranormal Group investigators. Or, you know, every, every little town probably has its club. The, the Catholic Church claims, rightly so, uh, to have a handle on that stuff and an understanding. And it's a very, very serious business. And for people who don't think so, read a book by Malachi Martin called Hostage to the Devil. And you'll understand how serious business uh, exorcism and demons are. And, and these, these young folks shouldn't be playing with it. But anyway, I thought they would come and do their hocus pocus, you know, Catholic holy water and all that stuff and dominoes and biscuits and, you know, Latin and prayers and, you know, do it once or twice and it would be done. It would be over. Okay, work's finished here. It's like, you know, I called the external, called the orchid man. They take <laughs> care of it. Um, no, 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 not at all. I mean, it was like the mate, the movie, The Matrix. You know, I mean, that movie was out quite a, it, to me. It seems like yesterday, but it's like 20 years ago or so. The Matrix came out. It's like, you know, it's the the scene, uh, the, the red pill or the blue pill. And I was presented with that same decision by the lead priest. He said, you have a choice to make. You can you can sell this house like it was sold to you. You can move on. No one will blame you. Maybe the new owners won't be affected like you were affected. You tried. You, you gave it a good shot. You can take your family and move on. Or if you want to stay, you want to stay and fight this, we will stand with you. And, I, and then I began to understand they don't really know how serious this is because he said to me, or maybe they didn't know how serious it was. He said, in a year, we'll know if we're making progress in a year. Wow. And I said, in a year, we'll just know if we're making progress. Yeah, it's that powerful. So this was a top, top notch demon. And we would later find out the name and its association with the death of children and its biblical name and so on. It was it was it was pretty rough. And, uh, you know, I, I chose, uh, I guess, uh, the red pill and we stayed. And, uh, you know, it's really changed my whole outlook on life and on religion and faith. I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat cynical now. I told you I, I was a hardcore evangelical Christian Baptist Bible thumping, you know, Sunday school bus, Sunday school teacher type. And, you know, I know I'd listen to these preachers who had all the answers. Well, I'll tell you, they don't have all the answers. But at the same time, when I talk about my faith, I'm not really I'm not I think faith isn't the right word anymore because faith is something that you know is true, that you hope is true. You know, I've experienced it. I've been there. It's like I saw Jesus, you know, raise Lazarus from the dead. I've, I've been in the supernatural world. I've dealt with this world firsthand. I've been in it. I know it's for real. 
There's no ifs, ands, or buts. The devil's for real. God is for real. You can believe in whatever you want to believe in and be sincere about it. But the Bible is real. It's truth, guys. <laughs> and uh, that's why I wrote this book. So let me ask you this, because this is, this is the question that everybody's going to ask in these situations. You had a, a family. Why did you choose to stay and fight rather than just give up considering and and part two to that question is bob looking back now do you have any regrets at all about choosing the path that you did good i get that question all the time um one it's my house it was my house it's my house i wasn't going to be pushed out of my house by anything and i i I just you know it was my house i always wanted that house and if you know me i'm just not gonna that's it and two i think to go right along with that i really couldn't pass that house on to anybody else i i just couldn't do it it was my problem it's my house the house had a problem i owned it most importantly though overarching everything i had a true belief that god that good can always in the end defeat evil I just didn't know. I had no idea it was going to take as long as it did. Right. Um, Evil fights back. Evil fights back hard. You know, rebuke the devil and he will flee from you. I'll tell you what, they fight back. Would I do anything different? I wouldn't have put my children through it. I thought at the time, you know what, this is my house. This is where my kids live. We're not. I thought it would show a sign of weakness if I moved my kids out. That I was already admitting defeat to a certain extent. I mean, we vacated two bedrooms in the house. We didn't even have really have furniture in the bedrooms. Couldn't use them. But nonetheless, uh, I think that was a mistake because two of my children really had serious mental issues. They're they're fine today. The funny thing is, the funny thing is. The one son who was least impacted by it, who in fact wanted to help be a part of the team to fight it, he's the one, uh, you know, if you read anything about me, my, he, he, he was a Iraqi war vet, and a few years ago he committed suicide. I mean, I, I, it just, it, it, this, this, this whole thing has really affected, has affected me deeply since since the book was published you know my marriage broke up as well i think that had more to do with our son's death but nonetheless you get involved in something like this you it's like dealing with the mob uh it's it's going to they they it's not it's it's not playing a game and uh but but most importantly as i said i wrote this book because there's so many young people today their parents didn't go to church. Maybe their grandparents did. They have no concept of God or the devil. And I've had more than one young person come up to me at book signings and say, you know, your book was the first thing that really led me to faith in God. I'd never been in a church. I didn't know anything about God. Now I understand. So if if, if that's the impact it has because this isn't just, you know, a scare me to death campfire book. This is a book clearly that talks about the existence, the reality of evil in the world. 
world. Bob, I, before we go any further, I do want to uh, say our heartfelt condolences on the loss of your son. One of the things that we preach in this show, at the beginning of every show, we thank all of our military and then we bring awareness to suicide and uh, mental health, depression. That's something that's a platform that, that we push on a regular basis because we have the audience to be able to do that. Uh, so it's it's something that's near and dear to our hearts. So it, it just hurts our soul to know Thank that you, you had I to go through that. that. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. The book. You cover so much more than what we could cover in an two-hour interview, what we could cover uh, on us telling the story or watching the episode of A Haunting, uh, which was based off of that. The book is so intriguing. It's literally, uh, you know, I'm not a reader. I'll read books on occasion, but it's really got to be something to keep my interest. And your book is one that was just fascinating from beginning to end. So I, I, I just well, encourage everybody to pick that book up. I did my best to research it. I mean, I wanted to tell a complete story. Now, you know, you know I was a, a military intelligence officer in, 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 the, in the military, and I learned how to take pieces of information and put them together to, to, uh, to paint, a, you know, a larger picture. And, um, I spent a lot of time, hired historical de- detectives, so to speak, to research the doctor, to find people who knew him when he was alive, um, all types of, of, uh, of research to verify things that I learned secondhand that are in the book that make sense, but yet I still wanted to... Uh, make it factual. So I'd say at least 90% of it I've been able to confirm. That's incredible. Now, and you found out that there was some deaths back in the 1700s. Tell me a little yeah, bit about 1792. that. 1792, there were four people buried in the front yard. A mother and her three daughters were uh, slaughtered. There, there, there was a war uh, taking place after the revolution. And uh, the United States government be all of a sudden owned Ohio and Indiana and Kentucky and opened it up for settlement. The British had not done that. Their, their colonies stopped at the Allegheny Mountains, and the Indians, uh, the Native Americans, said, we didn't sign the Treaty of Paris. This, this is our country, our land. So the United States quickly found itself in a major conflict and uh, it reached to uh, Fort Pitt, which is now Pittsburgh. Fort Pitt was reactivated. Uh, it's six, where the house is six miles from where Fort Pitt was, and there was a mother and her three daughters were were killed in a raiding party. Uh, the father came home and found his family killed and buried them uh, in what became our front yard. The house obviously wasn't there then, but we we believe that the that the spirits. Uh, the spirits that those uh, braves, those warriors called upon to give them courage and, you know, to be mighty savage warriors for their cause. And they killed those children that that spirit attached itself to the land where the house would eventually be built. And that was the uh, beginning of the problem. Bob, I want to bounce back to the closet. We touched on in our story before you came on about taking down, uh, cutting through the wall 
and finding items from from all the previous owners. What we didn't touch on was a picture that was found of what you believe was the first owner and some stuff on the back. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that was really creepy. That whole experience was really creepy. The diocese had made contact. You know, there was one group, and they became quite famous in the years after they came to my house. Ryan, what's his name? Ryan Buell and Paranormal State. They had their television show for several seasons, and they were really the groundbreaking paranormal investigators on TV. Well, they came to our place before they were famous. In to prepare for their trip, they talked with a mystic seer woman in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and told her about this house. And initially, her name was Julie. She was supposed to come with them. And then at the last minute, she said, I can't go to that house, and I recommend that you not go to that house either. But if you do go, you must find the void in the center of the house and gain access to it. That's all she said. So the first thing they said to me when they arrived, is there a void in the center of the house? And I said, well, in fact, there is. And underneath that that large staircase that I have made reference to is an area that's, I mean, it's a large area and uh, it's large enough that a a small child can, you know, walk in it. It's probably, I would say, uh, four feet high in there. And uh, to access, to get in, it's all you know, surrounded by walls, the dining room wall, the living room wall, the staircase itself, which goes in the foyer. But one side of it is the back of that closet uh, where the problem was with the uh, with the light. And they said, we have to access that area, that space. We were told to get in there. If I can ever point to one thing that made a difference, it was doing what was getting in there. So I, I I took a saw. And I mean, it's not like just cutting through wallboard in a new house. This is plaster that's, uh, you know, an inch thick with, uh, with lath boards. And it was a real mess. So I cut a large area out that we could get in there. We found a whole number of strange things. But yes, we found a crumpled up piece of paper that had been put there when the house was built in 1909. One side, it was, and you could tell who, if, I mean, I've, I have pictures, I've seen pictures of the original owners who built the house. It was a picture of, you call it a picture of uh, the man's wife and, uh, and her mother standing in the backyard looking at a very beautiful landscape and sunset, which the sunset is still there every night, obviously. The bucolic scene is gone. What was once a big apple orchard is now all houses. But what was strange, though, was on the reverse of it, this beautiful picture. Then who, who, who drew it had some real talent. I mean, these, this is real nice stuff, uh, real nice pictures. 
was was really this kind of sadistic, demented. It was a picture of the owner of the house smoking a cigar with deformed features and a hooked nose. And there was a picture of a dog. There was a picture of a snake. It, it, it was it was just it was really strange. It was like it was uh, the uh, anti nice picture. You know, it was like a curse. And it was uh, purposely then put in that space to remain there. I We were told that a curse was put on the house by one of the workers. I also did find some other things in areas of the house that were, were blocked off when it was built that pointed to a curse being put on the house by the workers. Um, but that gets into great detail, and it's all in the book. So let me ask you this. You do this part, and like you said, that was probably the greatest part on working this evil away. And eventually you do get the evil to go away. Yeah, you know, I want to just say one more thing <coughs> about that. You know, um, these these demons, as, as I came to understand, you know, they're, they're not omnipresent. I mean, they, they have to, even though they're supernatural, they can't be like two places at once. They have to be somewhere. And it had to be someplace in the house. And, you know, it would be real, it would be nuts in the house for a couple days. And then for a few days, it would be almost normal. And then it would come back, like with a vengeance. And I believe this thing hung out under the steps in that void. We like went into its lair and disturbed it because it was from that point forward that we became aggressive. We became the aggressors because I, I believe I began to learn how we could put a stick in its eye, how we could push back at it as it was trying to do with us. So what's it like in the house today, Bob? Well, I currently live in the house by myself. (laughs) <laughs> and um, I'm converting it uh, into a bed and breakfast. I uh, I, I can't say, you know, I kind of have post-traumatic stress syndrome. You know, any little thing still to this day will set me off. Right. Uh, you know, I'm always worried. Like the other day, my my son just happened to mention to me, oh, yeah, I came over the other day and used your table saw. And I said, oh, you left the light on downstairs. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I wasn't angry that he left the light on. I was I was happy he told me because I came downstairs and that light was on. And I know I didn't leave it on. <laughs> so those types of things still affect me. Uh, you know, that's another thing in writing this book. People say, oh, yeah, you did it for the money and so on. But it's my, my largest investment, you know, and I basically made the place unsaleable. Like, who wants to buy it? You say it's OK? You know, that's why I've just decided to turn it into a business, because how can you put a place like that really on the market? Plus, you know, big, giant house like that with a reputation. And, and, and I can tell you, folks, when you write a book with a major publisher, they make the money, believe me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. We did. They, a sh- they- I was going to say we did a show probably three, four weeks ago, and it was all on houses that people just couldn't sell because of a reputation like that. So it's one hundred percent true that it's hard to get rid of a house once it gets that reputation. Yeah, and you know, and and plus, 
you know, this this story got a tremendous amount of publicity, especially locally. I mean, I'm, I was a very well-known figure in Pennsylvania. You know, I was probably the top top three top, you know, uh, in the top three political uh, office holders in the state of Pennsylvania, uh, you know, behind the governor. So I was very well known. So I put the story out there. I certainly wasn't known for anything like this, nor should I be. I mean, I wasn't interested in it or anything, but I knew I had to write this book. And uh, it took me long enough to get it published, like six or seven years, uh, the whole process. And then it comes out and it takes the place by storm. And, you know, I, I took a chance there in my reputation. And uh, if anything, my reputation helped it because people knew me so well, they, they would basically say, well, we know this guy's not a cook. And he did a pretty good job when he was in office. He must be. And plus, I have, I have a cardinal of the church, literally, who was named in the book. The mayor of the city of Pittsburgh is the one who went to see the, uh, the, the bishop. Uh, so there's some well-known people in the book. So uh, anyway, it has, it has real credibility. It's, it's, it's not uh, kookery. And uh, I think, if anything, it just adds to the uh, intrigue about the whole story. Bob, we, uh, I don't want to touch on this too much, but, you know, obviously when this thing came out, you, there was a fair share of uh, criticism, mainly from uh, descendants, family members of previous owners who felt like that they were, uh, you know, a slighted in some way because I guess and most of them were deceased and couldn't tell their side of the story, but they felt like that maybe you put words in their proverbial mouths. But you, like you said, did your share of research to prove a lot of what you were saying, and you've got just as many people on your side that say, no, this is what happened uh, in these situations, and, and this was the reputation the house had. So tell me a little bit about just how you felt going well, we through all this. We yeah, we basically, there was, the people who sold us the house had three sons. The youngest was, a, was I think, when we bought the house, I think at the time, he was a senior in high school. Because they were actually moving to another house only a few blocks away, but it was in the city of Pittsburgh. And they were concerned that he was like on the football team and he was going to consider, or he was going to continue to go to the school district in Brentwood, even though they were moving into the city. But anyway, that's, that's beside the point. He's the one who really made an issue over the fact that my parents would never do anything like this. And now, first of all, one, I didn't use their real names in the book. I used a fictitious name. Secondly, I find it uh, interesting that the book is uh, released in August of 2014, within months before the book is released. And I'm saying months. Like, I think the guy, the, the man was 74 years old. Four months before it was, was released, he died. The, the, the woman was 68 years old. And a few months before that, she died. So they both die 
within a few months of the book's release. I, I, I just find that extremely – they weren't like old people either. It was just weird. The whole thing was strange. Now, I'm sure the kids were upset. Their parents had just died. This book then comes out within a matter of a couple months saying that they sold this house and he swears there was no problem. Even though I can tell you that one of his older brothers I ran into one time in a restaurant and I mentioned to him, hey, I've always wanted to, to, you know, I, I had tried to talk to his father several times. And when I was writing the book, I called his father on the phone and I had pleasant conversation. And I said, hey, we've experienced a lot of crazy spiritual activity in the house. Can we get together sometime and talk and uh, compare notes? And all of a sudden he got quiet and he said, I'll get back to you. Hmm. He hung up the phone, never heard from him again. And I mentioned to his son when I saw him, I said, yeah, I've, I've, I wanted to talk to your father sometime about this, what went on in our house. And uh, I have some pretty strange stories. And he said to me, I could tell you some strange stories. So there's there's no no question in my mind. And I've I've said over and over again, you know, I've taken lie detector tests for the CIA, for the NSA. I'll you know, and being in military intelligence, wire me up. Wire me up. You can ask me any aspect of this book. Wire them up at the same time and let's see if they'll do it. They won't. So, Bob, most people that read this book would say this would make a phenomenal movie. Any shot at that happening? Well, um, <laughs> yes, we uh, we um, have finally agreed to uh, what I think will be a major motion picture with a major studio. I uh, can't say you give any details. It's been a, it's been a while. We've been in negotiations. It's, it looks uh, I haven't I haven't signed anything yet, but it looks very promising. And I believe, you know, my only concern was we've be gone back and forth over it. I, I don't want them to make some just some scary movie. You know, there is a there is a message to this movie. There is a deep seated message of faith. I want to protect the integrity of that message. So that's what I've, I've kind of really stood firm on. And, and I've gotten some, uh, I'm going to say guarantees, but some wording to make me comfortable with it. Awesome. So the book is The Demon of Brownsville Road. Phenomenal. You need to pick it up. Bob, tell everybody how they can get the book and how they can uh, keep up with you on social media. Well, in 2014 or 15 or 16, I would have said, just go to your local bookstore. I doubt they're carrying it now. I mean, in, in Pittsburgh here back then, you could buy it at the local grocery stores and the Barnes and Nobles. And everyone had it. Uh, it is still available all the time on Amazon or barnesandnoble.com, The Demon of Brownsville Road. The book has a, uh, a website called demonofbrownsville.com. And on there is a link to television programs, to um, videos that I've done, to a Wikipedia page, and to our Facebook page, which is is pretty uh, intense as well. So demonofbrownsville.com. You can also link uh, Barnes to Barnes and Noble and Amazon from the book's web page. 
Nice. Guys, when you pick up this book, send Bob a message on Facebook or on some of his social media. Send him an email and let him know that you heard about it here and picked up the book and how much you like it. So. Yeah, review it on Amazon, please. Um, just, it, it's funny. This this book, it, it's funny. It, it, it's either a one or a five. People love it. People, uh, you know, really get into the faith aspect. Or, for folks that, it it it, it either affirms what you believe, it it uh, prompts you to believe, or it questions what you may not believe. And it can make some people very angry. I mean, I've read reviews, which you're not supposed to do on Amazon, but <laughs> I've read reviews. People just get all worked up. I mean, <laughs> write paragraphs of, of uh, and, and it's generally all, uh, uh, you know, what a, what a jerk I am and all this stuff. I mean, mean, mean vitriolic statements that, uh, uh, I, I've really, really touched a nerve with them, and they want to let me know. So, yeah, we're familiar with those types of reviews. Trust me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bob, I can't thank you enough for coming on. This has been a, a big thrill for me. Like I said, we've been doing this show for three years, and we've had a few guests that just stand out amongst everybody else as far as on my wish list. And you were definitely in that top echelon. So, thank you for this. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I appreciate and hopefully uh, all those hillbillies out there will read my book <laughs> or get the audio version if they can't read. <laughs> there you go. That's what we need. Like I said, we'll both. Say hi to all my all in Hopkinsville and Clarksville. Absolutely. I've spent some nice years there. So I think Bob did a very good job of explaining himself and uh, – it's obvious he has some regrets and would have done a few things differently, as he admitted to. So I'm not going to hold him completely responsible, even though I still think I probably would have went a different route from the beginning. But he admits he probably would have to. So, all right. Next live show. Hillbilly Horror Stories, Mysterious Circumstances, Us and Justin Rimmel, and The Sally House. Of course, the show is not in the Sally House. The show is in one of the top ten most haunted restaurants in the country. So we get a two-for-one deal. Wow. So I think it's Palaluchis is what it is. But uh, that's at Atchison, Kansas. That is, uh, what is it, August 11th. So come out and have some fun. There's all kinds of special things to do out there. And we're going to get Maria Miller on soon. She'll be out there also. She's the director of tourism for Atchison. And she knows every haunted nook and cranny of that place. And she's going to talk to us for about 30 minutes or so telling us about some of the other haunted locations there. It's going to be a must-see, and there's only 20 tickets left last time I looked. So snatch them up. Wow. We'll see you guys later.